Welcome to the Influential Personal Brand Podcast. This is the place where you'll learn cutting-edge personal brand strategies from today's most recognizable influencers. We're going to teach you how to build a rock-solid reputation and then how to turn that reputation into revenue. I'm your lead host, Rory Vaden, co-founder of Brand Builders Group, Hall of Fame speaker, and New York Times bestselling author of Take the Stairs. Hey, everybody. AJ Vaden here on the Influential Personal Brand Podcast. So happy to be here today. And I love when I get to interview new friends. And Hannah Pryor and I got introduced and just found out that we have lots and lots of mutual friends. But she was introduced to me from our chief experience officer, Matt Lyles. She's also good friends with one of my closest friends. And as we were just talking, I wanted to make a quick note for everyone about why you need to stick around for this particular particular episode. And I didn't even have this on my radar. I didn't even have this on my agenda. And as Hannah and I were talking right before I hit record, she said something and I'm like, that's going to be the most inspiring thing of all for everyone who is Mm -hmm. listening. And so here's my number one recommendation for anyone who is tuning in going, is this an episode that I should listen to? Would this be helpful for me today? Here's what I want you to know before we get into this interview. Hannah started her speaking and now authoring career two years ago. I'm just going to pause for a second and let that sink in. I didn't say 10. I said two, two years ago, right? And then just last year, she was named Success Magazine's Woman of Influence. Her new book, Good Awkward, was listed as one of the top books of 2023. She is on a rocket ship to the moon with her speaking bookings. And this was two years ago. And so we're going to talk a lot about how to use awkwardness as a superpower. We're going to talk about her book. We're going to talk about all kinds of things. But most importantly of all, if you are someone who is going, man, I just feel like this is taking forever. And I feel like, you know, I'm just, I'm gearing up for like this 10 year journey. I would just encourage you as I was just encouraged of like, it might take that long, but it might not. And you may want to tune in today to just get a, a spike of inspiration and rejuvenation of going like, Hey, the work you're doing can pay extraordinary dividends. Don't give up. And so uh, that would be my encouragement as you're listening and tuning in today. Stick around and learn how somebody like Hannah started just two years ago and is way further ahead than she ever thought possible just two years later. So that would be my encouragement to you. Now, before we get going, let me formally introduce you to Miss Hannah Pryor, who is a sought-after workplace performance expert. She is an award-winning two-time TEDx speaker. She is a global keynote speaker. She's an author. She's an executive coach. I love this. She says her clients call her the secret weapon for impossible change. I think we all could use a little secret weapon of that in our lives. But she's also known, which I appreciate this, for her science-based approach in a fun no nonsense, no jargon way. And I know if you guys listen to the podcast, you know that she is speaking my love language. And as I mentioned earlier, she was recently recognized as a Success Magazine Woman of Influence. What an awesome honor. And she has a best-selling book, Good Awkward, that was named as one of the best books of 2023. So Henna, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Do you ever have that experience when someone is talking about you and describing you and you're like, wait, seriously, that's me? <laughs> it's like, when you talk about it, I'm like, that person sounds really accomplished. Oh, wait, that's me. 
Thank you. Thank you for that kind introduction. I love it. And I'm so excited to connect. I'm so excited that there was like this, like behind the scenes interwebbing of mutual connections that led to this interview. And that's what I love about when you're just great at what you do, your your name just kind of starts popping up everywhere. And the fact that we were able to pull this off and get this interview recorded today is just so exciting to me because anyone referred to me by Matt, who's our chief experience officer, already comes in high regard. And I'm just so excited to to delve into this. And I want to start this interview by this comment that you made before we hit record, because I think this was not, I love it when things I'm like, whoa, that wasn't even on my radar for this conversation. So I'm so glad you mentioned it. And so I want the audience to get to know you a little bit, but also I want to know, like, what were you doing before two years ago? And then what led to this pivotal change where you're like, hey, I'm going to head down this, you know, professional speaking path and then writing a book. And then how on God's green earth have you done what you've been able to do in two years time? So I know that's a lot, but this is what I want to start with. I love the question. Is coffee a fair answer? Is that allowed? Uh, <laughs> Lots of it. Co- coffee and a lot of laughter. No, the, the short answer is I spent 14 years in the staffing industry. So direct hire executive search where I was working with both candidates and clients. But in that space, I got to work with leaders across industries and get a firsthand view as to what made employees happy, what made experience strong, what made people stay, leave, what made brands successful kind of got to watch it from a a 20,000 foot view for 14 years. When I left there in late 2019, I actually went and got my executive coach certification. So for about a year or so, I focused on the one-on-one space and executive coaching, but slowly that morphed into, hey, can you come do this with my team? Can you come do this thing that you do with me at our conference? Can you start to, to talk to more of us, which naturally and organically shifted into speaking. Now, my first paid speaking gig was late 2021. So two years and let's say two months at this point, I got paid $250 to go to Vegas. They did not pay for my flight. I live on the East Coast. So I went in the hole, right? I think I was in the hole about $200. But that was my first time speaking to a group. And immediately I was like, oh, doing this in front of a bigger group feels electrifying. I love this. I would do this for free. And I think immediately once I had that experience, I knew not only was that something that I loved, but frankly, that was a calling I had had for a long time and was too afraid to step into because at the time of I'm I'm 42, just about to be 42, I'm like I'm going to tell other people how to run their businesses, how to build their brands, how to be successful and have peak performance. I'm only halfway through my life, but I finally got out of my own way long enough to say you know, you can, you can try this. You can take a stab at it, place some bets. And I've been placing bets ever since. And it's been great. So if you don't mind me asking, your first paid engagement, $250, roughly two, two and a half years ago. Do you mind telling people how often you're speaking now and what you're charging now? Oh yeah. No, I don't mind at all. At least three times a month, I would say I'm on the road and that's by design. I do have children. I try not to make it more than that. And let's just say, add a bunch of zeros to that, you know, kind of 100, 100x, 10x. I mean, my math is like not serving me right now. Yeah. So the number, the starting number is similar. There's a lot more zeros on the other side of it. And, and, I, and that's the stuff of dreams. Yeah. That, you know what? I think that's really important to know because I think one, it's really important for everyone to just pay attention. Like her first paid engagement was $250. Not $2,500, $5,000. It was $250. In a paper check that they handed me in the lobby when I got yeah. there. 
and yeah. didn't cover her travel. So it's like, if this is really a calling on your life, it's like, and I love what you said. It's like, when I did it, I was like, I would do this for free, right? Okay. It's an honor to get paid. I love this so much. I would do it for free, but it's, I think it's important for us all to know you're going to start and some humble beginnings, yeah. but that can quickly expedite 10x, 100x if you're phenomenally good at what you do, right? And I, that's what I just, I really want people to latch on. It's like, don't be embarrassed to go, I'll come for free, $100, sure, I'm coming, knowing that in a short one or two years later, it could be so much more than that, but you've got to be willing to go, I don't care. I want to do this so much, I'll be there. Yeah. And I appreciate what you said about being phenomenally good at what you do. I think there was some of that where I was naturally good at some of what I did. You know, I think there's a degree to which some people have something in them that activates this, but there was also a lot I was not good at. There was a whole bunch that, you know, as it relates to the craft of public speaking and and sort of thought leadership, which I do believe is a craft, I had a lot to learn. So once I decided I was going to plant my stake in this, I invested a lot in coaches in programs, in partners, because I don't think that the people who want to play at the highest levels get there quickly without support. And I was impatient. I wanted to get there quickly. I wasn't willing to wait 10 years, 15 years. And I do think that for me has been a big difference in the speed in which this has happened. You asked, how did it happen in two years? I found who I perceived to be the best. And I called them and I said, how do we work together? And that has played a huge role in the fact that things have happened as quickly as they did. I love that. We say this all the time. It's like, you don't have to recreate the will. So don't, right? Yeah. It's like, there have been others that have gone before you. Get a mentor, hire yeah. a coach, attend a conference. But my goodness, get out there and do something to help yeah. expedite that learning curve. I was just thinking about this. I have a four-year-old and a six-year-old, both boys who are oddly obsessed with football and we were just watching a game and I'm, I'm drawing a blank. It's driving me nuts right now of like what the team was, but they were talking about this quarterback and he is not, he is not a well-known quarterback at mm -hmm. all. And in fact, the statistics that they were sharing about him were in the last two years, two, two years, he has been sold or traded or you switched positions or team 23 times. Oh my God. <laughs> but in two awesome. years. And I'm like, yeah, what? Is that even possible? Like, yeah. how does that happen? And he was having the game of his life. They ended up winning the game. The only reason I know is because our team was the other team. And they were like just talking about like this amazing story of perseverance. And then they shared what this kid, he's not a kid, he's in his late 20s, yeah. but this kid was doing. And he said he has hired every coach. He has gone to every off-season training and they were all these announcers were just sitting there going like, look at this success story of someone who no one thought would even be in the NFL two years later. And here yeah. he is living out his dream, playing quarterback in the NFL, but he took a risk on himself. He invested all the money he was making to hone his craft and now look at him. Mm. Yeah. What I love about what you just said, I think that the, the line that just grabbed me, you said at the end is... He took a risk on himself. I resonate with that so much because when you take a risk on yourself, it can feel really embarrassing and really awkward to get traded 23 times. Most people wouldn't wave that flag proudly. No. They wouldn't say like, good for me. I got traded or 23 times. That's, that's <laughs> embarrassing as an athlete that you couldn't stay in demand enough with where you were that people didn't want to trade you off like a playing card. I mean, that's 
that can be embarrassing and it can derail people from trying something new in the future. But I love that that didn't stop him. He continued to take the risks on himself because he had a goal. That to me is so, so much my ethos too. Yeah. And I, and I love, I think that's, and that's really what it is. It's like when you are truly following your calling, it's like, I can't not do this. I have Mm -hmm. to, I have to give Mm -hmm. it every single thing I have. It is in my DNA and that regardless of how long it takes, those people will be successful. Yeah. It may not always happen in two years, but it will happen because they don't give up. And that's what I love about, you know, stories like that. And so as you were talking, it made me think about listening to these announcers that were both enamored and just like, they were also like so happy that he was like made it to where he is because that's what happens when somebody invests in themselves so much. And so just to pivot just a tiny little bit, I want to know, it's like, so you kind of organically shifted into, you know, this prior corporate career to executive coaching. Then it was like, Hey, can you do this for my team? And then, Hey, can you do it for more people? And all of a sudden here you are. How did the book come about? Ah, the book. Okay. The book. I've always wanted to write a book since the fifth grade. I think I always had this this desire to write a book one day, but similar to the speaking thing, I think I was nervous to do it because there's a lot of books. (laughs) And I thought, okay, what do I have to say that's new and fresh? And I remember an origin story for me is one of awkwardness. My parents are South Asian immigrants. My mom's from Pakistan. My dad's from India. I am named Henna. I was born in the 80s. Hannah Barbera was all the thing. And so people were mispronouncing my name. My food smelled weird in my lunchbox. And, <laughs> you know, the, the story that I told myself my entire childhood was the me I wanted to show the world was always clashing with the me that was on display. And there wasn't a day that went by that I didn't feel impossibly awkward about it. So fast forward, you know, college, I sort of found my people. Then I entered the professional spheres. Every transition point professionally, every inflection point, I feel like all those feelings came back again. Mm. Like they're looking at me, they're wondering what I'm doing. Am I being an idiot right now? This is embarrassing. I don't, I'm not saying the right thing. And our queen, Brene Brown, started saying this thing at the end of her podcast. She would say, stay awkward, brave, and kind. Mm. That became her tagline. And I had a very visceral reaction to it. I remember thinking, brave. Yep. Yep. I know that one. Kind. Yes. My parents taught me that one. Stay awkward. No, thank you. I've been trying to get rid of this my whole life. What are you talking about, lady? Everything else you say is brilliant. This one, I don't know. And I got very curious about this particular emotion and how it relates to the way we show up at work, in life, in our personal brands. The deep dive began. So TEDx and then book on that very topic. I love that so much. And the fact that you just like embraced it so wholeheartedly and wrote the book, launched the book, and all of this too is in like the last two and a half years and some change. I would love to know just really quickly, and then I actually want to get in and talk about how do we use awkward as a superpower and like, what is good awkward, right? Because I think most people associate awkward with like, well, awkward is just awkward. It's not good. But right, there's these amazing things that can come about that. But I'd love to hear about like the authoring process because first time author, right? And we have so many people who are first time authors or aspiring authors in our audience. So I would love just for you to share what was your experience of writing your book? Yeah. Oh gosh. So I was listening to your recent episode with, uh, I think it's Allison Trowbridge that she was yeah. talking about a little bit of the authoring. And so a lot of what she said, I was nodding my head, but for me, you know, I mentioned I wanted to write a book since the fifth grade. I've always liked writing in, let's call it dabbling context. So there was a period there where I had a Tumblr blog and then, you know, social media posts and all that, but 
a book felt like a big ask, right? It was a big reach and not a small project. I'm a little squirrely in that I don't like doing the same thing for too long. So I thought, do I even want to do this? But what it really ended up becoming about was I started to seed the idea on social media. So on LinkedIn, I started to test this idea of awkwardness as a superpower. Where are my fellow people who feel awkward all the time? Not necessarily who identify as awkward, and we can talk about that, the sort of state versus trait, but that feel this a lot. They feel awkward raising their hand in a negotiation or for a promotion or for a project. And so I started to test some of this content that was in my mind on social, and it was very quick that I realized other people are resonating with this. And so I didn't just start writing a book sight unseen, right? You have to sort of know, is there a reader for this thing that feels important to you? And the answer on social media was yes. People are like, oh, I feel like you're in my head. I feel like you're putting words in my mouth. And it became very clear that there was a community of people who also had strong feelings about that word. And once that became evident, then it sort of felt like this natural morphing from, you know, TEDx was a 15-minute test of the idea. That resonated. And then there was a lot more to talk about than landed in 15 minutes. So it became perfect fodder for a longer form book. And I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and half of it got thrown out (laughs) and I found a really good editor and the rest ended up being where we are today. And I'm just really happy with how it came out and came together. Yeah. I think what's so important for everyone to hear is that the book was not the testing ground. No, gosh, no. And I think so often it's like people are like, I want to write a book. And then it's like, we get busy with like writing the outline and we start writing and it's like, that's not really where it starts. And back to what you said, it's like, I had a Tumblr blog, I was doing LinkedIn posts and then that graduated into a TEDx. And it's like, the more that I did, the more I figured out what was resonating and what was clicking. And it's like, we always say this at Brain Builders Group, it's like writing the book is not the hypothesis, it's the conclusion, right? But we, we got to know what that is. And the only way to really know what that is, is to start testing it, right? And yeah. that's the power of a blog and social media and, and speaking even, right? It's testing out the content of going, okay, now I know the words that need to be on the pages. Yeah. I think not only testing the content, but also it was opportunities to test my voice. So mm-hmm. I, I've written a book in the nonfiction personal and professional development space alongside lots of wonderful, serious types. And I quote Tupac in the book, right? (laughs) Because that's who I am. And so for the last year or two, I've been playing with bringing my whole voice to Mm -hmm. my LinkedIn profile. And can we talk about serious workplace performance topics in a light, playful, no jargon way? And so, you know, one of my personal life mantras is take the work seriously, but never yourself. But I wasn't going to put years of my life, hours of my day into a book in a voice that I hadn't yet ensured would be received by the intended audience. So, so much test driving the content and also test driving your voice, getting solid in your voice before you put all that energy, time, money, heart into a book. I love that. And and I love too, it's like, I love that quote. It's like, take the work seriously, but not yourself. And if you're not, and I think it's too, it's like, if you haven't figured out your voice yet, there's not time yet. Yeah. Right. And I love that testing your voice as well as testing the content. So let's talk about the content. So let's talk about this new book of yours called Good Awkward. So what is good awkward? What is good awkward? So quick definition of awkwardness is helpful here. So lots of definitions from every dictionary, but for the context of today, awkwardness is the emotion that we feel when the person that we believe ourselves to be, our true self, is momentarily facing a gap 
between the person other people see on display. In other words, for a moment or maybe moments, our internal identity doesn't quite match their external reality. So I raise my hand in a meeting at work and I call someone the wrong name. In that moment, the internal identity I hold, someone who's thoughtful about names, who pronounces them correctly, is facing a gap between the version that they see, sloppy, careless, doesn't care about these things. Mm. In the personal branding space, I put out a post that without me realizing it comes across as, you know, a little tone deaf or a little bit off the cuff. The person I believe myself to be is now facing a gap between the person that other people see on display. That middle space where we feel that discomfort emotion, that specific emotion of discomfort in a social setting is where we experience awkwardness. Good awkward simply means that in order for us to grow as professionals, as people, as brands, as personal brands... Every time we put ourselves into that stretch zone where growth is on the table, we are going to face the potential and the possibility of awkwardness. There's no avoiding it because to avoid awkwardness is to avoid uncertainty. So eliminating it is not an option. (laughs) We have to get good at it instead. Mm, I love that whole concept of just get good at awkward. Mm -hmm. It's going to happen. It's not going away. Even the most confident, polished, together people you know have not cracked the code on eliminating awkwardness. They've just dialed in their comeback rate. Yeah. Comeback rate is fast. Yes. I love that. So let's talk a little bit about how do you become good at awkward? Yeah. So two parts here. The first part is awareness. There is a mindset component here. So awkwardness, again, it's a social emotion. Let's say you're practicing a social post that you want to write. You're kind of drafting it out and you get a fact or figure wrong. Well, if you didn't post it yet and nobody saw it, you don't feel awkward about it. It's a social emotion. It's once other people start to create an opinion of it that all of a sudden it kicks up. So it is very closely tied to approval. So part one of this conversation is how do you start to peel back the layers on the stories that you hold around awkwardness? Maybe growing up, it was, don't do that. People are watching. You know, other people are looking at you. If you grow up with those messages, then you probably are going to have lower tolerance for awkward moments. Everyone's Mm -hmm. staring. Everyone's looking at you. So a little bit of a, a narrative rewrite on what is awkwardness. It's natural. It's universal. It's normal. And it's part of the growth journey. Mm-hmm. Part two, and this is the part that I'm very passionate about, it's conditioning. It's conditioning of a muscle. We now live in a society where we are facing a weakening of our social musculature. Mm-hmm. So on this day, AJ, we're new friends. But if if I really wanted to, we could theoretically stay in touch and never talk again. We could text. We could Slack. Right? I could order my meals on DoorDash. I can date by swiping. I don't mm-hmm. technically have to interact with another human in many contexts if I don't want to. And you know, add to that a pandemic, which made this much worse and accelerated it. We are facing a decline in social interaction. We don't have to have it anymore. And so what's happened is that we don't even have practice in the small moments. Yeah. And all of a sudden, we need to course correct on something that went sideways in one of our speeches and our posts and a podcast we were on. And we're even less primed for how to handle those moments because we don't even have these daily moments of happenstance anymore. So we actually need to now overcorrect and condition for those social moments. And there's lots of ways that we can do that. But conditioning is a second important component to this. 
Hi, it's AJ Vaden, and thanks for listening to the Influential Personal Brand Podcast. Did you know that the ideas we share on the show are things we actually specialize in helping you implement? If you want to raise your public profile and turn your reputation into revenue, please visit freecall.brandbuildersgroup.com to sign up for a free brand strategy call with one of our personal brand strategists. Again, that's freecall.brandbuildersgroup.com to sign up for your free call. Talk to you soon. As you were talking, it just made me think because you're right. It's like, I don't have to have social interactions, unfortunately, but it's like, even in like social media, it's like you can custom curate the perfect post of like, I never have to look awkward. I never have to experience awkward if I don't want to. And I think that there's a little bit of it because I just turned 40 this year. So we're Mm -hmm. in the same high school generation. I'm so grateful that all those things did not exist when I was growing up because it did. It it built a muscle where it's like, yep, that happened. (laughs) What are you going to do about it? Right. Sometimes people think they're like, oh. Is it the new generation? I'm like, well, it is. You know, my daughter's 13 and it's for sure in this generation where we went to a friend's house. I was about to ring the doorbell and she's like, no, no, no. We text. We text here from the driveway. And I'm like, oh God. But then I, you know, I thought, okay, maybe it's just the teens. It's the youths, right? Get off my lawn. My husband, who's in his mid forties, we were trying to order DoorDash the other day and it wasn't working. And I said, okay, well, can you call the taco place? And he says, no, no, no. We'll just get pizza instead. And I'm like, babe, I want tacos. Like just call, right? He, by the way, he's in sales for a living, uh, he's not an introvert. So, funny. so we're, we're all facing this, yeah. right? And, and where I think it's important to understand is it's not changing anytime soon. Mm-hmm. So we have to now create what you and I had the opportunity to have more naturally. We have to be more intentional to find those opportunities now. Yeah. I think that's so good. And I think it's like anything. It's like, if the more you do it, the better you get at it. Right. And it's like the more it does just become that. So let's talk about these in a couple of different ways here, because I love what you said. And I've kind of have like a few questions that I want to make sure we get to through this interview. And my job is to keep us on time, which I'm not always (laughs) so good at. But it's like, I love like one of you, one of the things that you have said is like awkwardness can be one of the greatest brand assets that you have. And I'd love to kind of dive into that. Of there's one thing of going, you know, there might be someone listening going, yeah. I'm awkward. There's a lot of people who are listening going, no, I don't want to be awkward. Right. And it's like, (laughs) but maybe there's some benefit to it. So let's talk about like, what are some of the perks and benefits of embracing our awkwardness? Yeah. I love that you started to touch on it when you were talking about the way we show up on these social channels. So the thing about social, or let's just call it like our digital presence in, in brand world is it's asynchronous, meaning we don't get to mess up and then quickly get the response from mess up. It kind of trickles in, right? With like likes and comments and it's all this slow, different timeline type of experience. But what happens to be universally true is, you know, there is, I think, a greater skepticism towards the performance that happens, especially online. In the book, I have a line, you know, we're either awkward or we're performing. Mm-hmm. There really isn't an in-between, right? Where if we're if we're perfectly on on point, that's okay. I'm not against perfection, but just understand that if you are coming out as a human perfect, then you're performing. Otherwise, we're in that awkward potential of something going unexpectedly awry. So where there's opportunity here is 
knowing that our audiences generally are holding up a little bit of skepticism about the highlight real world, the perfect, you know, we're always on, we're always getting it right. There is enormous opportunity in life's natural and inherent awkward moments to create a literal espresso boost of loyalty from our our clients, the people that we serve. So example, Sheryl Sandberg, when she wrote Lean In, again, hailed by many as a great book, and she's very quickly been catapulted as a thought leader of our time, but it was very quickly criticized by many because it was out of touch or really only for the privileged. Now, for Sheryl Sandberg, that had the potential to be very embarrassing, very awkward. Here she is trying like hell to advocate for women, and a wave of people are telling her she's out of touch. She doesn't understand. She could have ignored it. She could have shut down that there's a lot of ways she could have gone. But instead, she not only heard the criticism, she named it. She named it out loud. And she continued to then incorporate what she was learning and hearing in the areas where she fell short in this conversation into her future talks, into her future content, into her keynote, which made even those who kind of were, let's call it early haters of the work, all of a sudden come on board because of the way she handled that awkward situation. It could have been, again, a huge derailment to the message she was trying to create. And instead, she used it as a force for good. There's hundreds of examples of similar, but when we have those moments, what are we going to do with them? Because it can either become something that shuts you down, or we can look for that gift in the garbage and use it as an opportunity to rise up further and faster than we did before. Yeah. You know, and that's such a mindset, right? Because it's like, Mm -hmm. you are going to do one of those two things. It's like, you're going to be so embarrassed and so ashamed or so whatever. It's like, it's like, I'm done. I'm out. Right. I'm going to turn off my social media, block all the comments and I'm going to go hide for a few weeks. Yeah. Or it's like, yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah. Right. And uh, let's learn from it and let's grow and change from it. So I'd love to hear from you. It's like, what does it take for someone to build that mindset Mm -hmm. You can kind of become not embarrassment proof. It's like we all feel moments of embarrassment, but you're able to go, well, that was embarrassing. And yet here I come, right? I'm I'm still moving. So what are some things that we can do to help build that? Because I think that's a lot of what people really struggle with. It's like they want to be seen in this certain way. And it's like, yeah, but there's all these other things that are naturally going to happen along the way. And when they don't go right, they just kind of fall apart. Yeah. There's a couple pieces of research that are really helpful here that shaped my thinking around this. One of my favorites is from psychologist Elliot Aronson. This was decades ago that he noticed something called the pratfall effect. So what I am not suggesting is that you currently, you know, in your spaces, step in it on purpose to make yourself feel more relatable, right? I'm not telling you to go spill coffee all over your lap in your next, (laughs) you know, LinkedIn live. Please don't do that. But what I am saying is that What the research shakes out is if you are generally someone who appears competent, intelligent, smart, capable, if you generally, most of the time, come across as someone like that, and you occasionally say the wrong thing, step in it, embarrass yourself, have an awkward moment, it actually does not hurt you. In fact, what the pratfall effect tells us is that people like that, what it actually does is it kind of knocks you down a little bit off the pedestal that we put you on. And makes you one of us. It Mm -hmm. makes you human and relatable. And if you can just stay in that for a moment and go, well, wasn't proud of that. That didn't quite go, you know, how I planned, or I didn't say that the way I wanted to. It actually can create an even deeper level of loyalty. So I'll just give a specific example on a LinkedIn or I'm sorry, an Instagram story recently. I think I used the term something about my tribe. 
And I am trying to be just more thoughtful. Again, everyone's got their own tolerance, but understanding that that's a term that is, you know, sort of owned by indigenous people. And there's a lot of other ways to say it, my squad, my crew. And I wasn't happy with my word choice and I could have left it. And a few people, you know, wouldn't have cared and maybe nobody would have cared. But for me, that felt like a misstep that I wanted to address. So it wasn't terribly difficult to say, you know what, I I wish I didn't use that word, right? And that's just something I'm being mindful of. No judgment. You know, everybody else is on their own journey. But I got, I think, 20 messages in response to my follow-up mm. just saying, hey, I appreciated watching you do that in real time. I love that. Right? I appreciated just you, you figuring that out in real time and sharing it with us. Same thing with book things that went sideways, things that didn't work out. You know, again, these embarrassments can end up being the thing that create the loyalty that nothing else can create that quickly. How many of those can we lean into? Mm, I love that. It's I jotted this down as a reminder to myself. It's like your reactions are just as important as your actions. Yeah. You know, and it's like sometimes it's the way that you react to the thing mm-hmm. that will create, I guess one, it's a little bit of that authenticity factor, but more than that, it's that humanizing factor. It's like, yeah, I appreciate that. And I don't see that very often, right? It's yeah. embracing this thing that I'm like, oh, I wish I, that didn't happen, but let's talk yeah. about it versus brushing it under the rug. Yeah. And I think just the, the second thing I'd add to this is we just heard that the word of the year was authenticity, right? Merriam-Webster. So the, and a lot of people are like, yes, I love that. I can't wait to be more authentic. And yet they are still trying so hard to be perfect in their yeah. videos, in their posts. And what I remind them is, You can't get to authenticity without stumbling through awkwardness first. There isn't a path there. Awkwardness and the messy middle is the journey to authenticity. And what I'm not asking, again, is for you to falsify it. But what I am asking is don't keep the curtain shut during those moments. Just let people in and trust that as long as you are generally, again, doing a good job in your other spaces, you generally show up as prepared in care of the people that you serve that believe it or not, people will not hold it against you. In fact, it has the inverse effect Mm -hmm. as long as you're setting the right foundation the rest of the time. Yeah. You know, I love that. And actually, you know, when we think of something, I think my husband does amazing things in lots of areas, but (laughs) one of the things that Rory does really well is, you know, he learned the art of this at a really young age. You know, he started speaking when he was like 18 to high school groups, but in his early twenties, I remember him teaching other you know, young speakers, um, these comeback lines mm-hmm. and the comeback lines where this is what happens if the audio goes down. This is what mm-hmm. happens if no one laughs. This is what happens if, and it was like, immediately he was like, this is how, he, and now what I hear you saying, it's like, what he was doing is like, this is how you embrace the awkward, yeah. right? And be yeah. prepared for it, embrace it. Know it's going to happen at some point, be ready for it. And if you're ready for it, then it turns something that could have been so off-putting into something that's quite honestly, quite hilarious. Yeah. I love that you made this connection. Yeah. Yeah. Because one of the the last chapter of the book, we talk about using kind of improv skills to tolerate and embrace awkwardness. And it's exactly what you're describing. It's understanding that uncertainty is going to come. Are you building the muscle to tolerate it? And again, you don't have to take an improv class. In fact, let's start small. The next time you're at a coffee shop, leave your headphones out, right? See what happens if you catch someone's eye. The next time you're in the supermarket line, leave your phone in your pocket. Yeah. See what happens if you catch someone's eye in an elevator. Don't hammer the closed door button shut. See what happens if someone walks in and you make a quick conversation. We have to intentionally now create these little moments to practice being in social uncertainty, Mm -hmm. or we will never tolerate 
somebody not laughing at our joke. We will never tolerate somebody shouting us, you know, heckling us in the audience. If we don't build social reps in the small moments, the big moments are going to be extra painful. A disastrous. You know, it's so funny. As you said, as you mentioned improv, I'm like, oh my gosh. During this exact same time period, Rory was taking stand-up comedy lessons. Ah, I love like, it. He totally learned this in stand-up comedy. Probably. You, going to watch him in stand-up comedy, that was awkward. I was awkward. That, <laughs> that was awkward. That was awkward for me. But it was like one of those things he was like, I'm going to do this so that when I'm on stages, I'm prepared. And Nothing will phase him anymore. Yeah. And it's so true. But mm-hmm. I, you know, it's like a totally connected dots as you were talking about that. And I don't know why I had a 20 year flashback, but I'm like, oh, that's what that was. He's ahead of his time. I love that. Okay. So my next question is, how do you monetize this? Right. And it's like, you have this whole idea of like, you can monetize your missteps. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah. I want to talk about that because I got lots of awkwardness. So how do I turn that into some sort of monetization idea? Yeah. Again, I am so just tickled and grateful and thankful and humbled by the last few years. But I will tell you, one of the biggest pieces of feedback I get after a keynote is, gosh, Hannah, you're so relatable. Mm. You're so approachable. You're one of us. And I'll tell you, it's as simple as naming my F-ups out loud. Excuse my language, right? Like the the things that I'm teaching, I don't start with what went well. I start with how I royally screwed it up a million times. Often on a stage, I will say, you know what? I meant to explain this graph differently. Rewind. Let's try that again, right? I will I will have very natural moments of brain fart. I went blank. I meant to explain that differently. Or someone will, you know, respond if it's a small group in a way that I didn't expect. I don't run away from that or I, you know, shy away. I actually run in and say, you know, I didn't expect you to say that. So let's talk about this a little more. Tell me more about what you mean by that. But I lean into what in many cases would create a, oh my gosh, I don't appear like an expert anymore. I don't appear what I'm talking about anymore. And people are so afraid to do that because they're afraid it's going to diminish their mm. you know, perception of expertise. But again, I'm here to tell you that if you generally are well-prepared, well-rehearsed, well-thought-out, the rest of the time, those couple of instances are actually going to give you feedback of, oh, you're so human. You're mm-hmm. so relatable. You're so approachable, which has been a catalyst for my repeat bookings. We like people that get it. So getting it, keeping the awkward alive is is a, is a money-making opportunity if you let it. I think that's a huge part of it is that, you know what I said, what you said there that I think it's really important is relatable. And that doesn't matter if you're a speaker, an author, small business owner, a startup. It doesn't matter if you're a salesperson, a doctor, a physician. It's like, my gosh, we all want someone who it's like, do you get me? Because this conversation, like, I feel like I'm so dumb right now. Like, I don't even know what words. We were at a restaurant here lately. And I'm like, I feel so dumb asking this, but I don't know anything that you just said. Like, (laughs) what is that? And how is that cooked? And it was like, Rory, Rory on purpose always is like mispronouncing things on purpose to embarrass me. And (laughs) You know, it's like Eric Hovey. He's always like, oh, Ericot Burtz. Oh, boy. <laughs> Stop saying that. But it was like, we were at this restaurant and I'm like, I literally don't know what anything is. I'm like, you were yeah. talking too fancy right now. And it was like, I was like, in that moment, I felt so out of place in this restaurant. Mm-hmm. I'm like, this is like too much. I cannot handle this. And he was like, do you want to leave? And I'm like, kind of. I'm like, mm-hmm. if I can't tell what is on the menu and the server is having to explain to me what all these things are. I'm like, this is too much. But I think there's a lot of that of going, like it literally did create like a 
physical reaction of like, I'm, I'm not comfortable here. Like I'm Mm -hmm. not enjoying myself anymore. I feel so dumb that I just had Mm -hmm. to ask all these things. Like, why couldn't there just be a little bit more of like the everyday person who eats food is going to come in and wonder what is all this stuff that we've put on this menu. And it was like, literally it was like, like we almost got up and left and Rory was like, Mm -hmm. Hey, just the food's going to be good. Right. 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 And it's like one of those things. It's like a hundred percent of it was like, I felt so out of place because Mm -hmm. like, does anyone else know what this is? It's just, just me. And it's that relatability factor. It's like, how often do we use our expertise to help us sound more credible? But what we're really doing is creating this huge chasm between us and our audience. And they're going, well, she's too smart. Like, I don't even know what she's talking about. And I'm too afraid to ask because I don't want to look dumb. So now I'm just sitting here going, what is going on? Mm -hmm. What is happening? And I think that happens all the time. People just don't talk about it. Yeah. What I love about your story is, in those moments, most of us would think, gosh, everyone must feel, read on my face what I'm feeling. Like the server must realize that I am just so uncomfortable right now. Everybody around me must realize, but awkwardness is sneakily one of those emotions that you will always feel it 10X, Mm -hmm. 20X more than anyone else is seeing it on you. I remember the first time at my public speaking training, I got up and talked in front of my peers. My knees were knocking my hands were shaking and I'm thinking everyone can see this. And I got down and I'm like, you could see my knees, right? And they're like, what, what was what was going on with your knees? What was going on with your knees? And so this is the spotlight effect, right? Everyone is paying closer attention to our missteps, our knocking knees, our I don't understand the menu, when that's just not the reality. They've already thought about themselves. They're already back to their next table, their next whatever. And this is preventing us from trying things and taking the risks. So just that awareness is really good as we think about what are we going to try to do next? Maybe you'll go back to the restaurant. Maybe you won't, but you did it and you survived it. And you're here to tell the tale. I will tell you, I will not be going back. (laughs) (laughs) You don't have to. You don't have to. I need to know what the words on the menu are. But it it still come back. It's like relatability factor. And it's like, the truth is what we discovered is we were not their audience. Yeah. And that's okay. They are. It's okay. you know, and that's okay. But it's like, if you know who your audience is, then you got to speak language they understand. You want to yeah. go where they have green green beans. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I need. To know. I need these fancy, fancy French words. I think a lot of that has that relatability factor, right? And it's yeah. like, if clients are saying, hey, man, you're so relatable, but that's telling you, it's like, these are my people. Yeah, right? yeah. And, and, and they identify. Agree. And I think, you know, the best part of all of this is it actually takes less effort. It takes less effort to let some of this fall off some of this armor of perfection. And mm-hmm. you know, one of the best compliments I received from a branding standpoint, and it really makes my heart sing every time I hear it, they say, Hannah, you're the same on a keynote stage as you are on your LinkedIn posts, as you are on your website, as you are at happy hour with your friends. Now, granted, yeah, happy okay. hour probably has a few more curse words and some other <laughs> you know inappropriate <laughs> jokes. But other than that, they're like, Hannah, it's crazy. You're the same person in all those places. And I can't help but think that's crazy. That's crazy to people. That's just be you. It's a lot less work to be the same you in all the places, but it requires letting go of some of this element of performance. Yeah. So let's talk about that for a minute. So how do we do that? Because I think that's a fascinating thing, especially with the emergence of technology and social media. And my gosh, now AI and all of the things where I'm like, is that is that you or is that a fake yeah. you? Like, I yeah. don't know. I think a lot of it has to do with, it's like, I, I want to get the same person at coffee that I see on social media and often it, it, they are different, right? I've got this yeah. continual hang up about meeting people that I really admire. I'm like, I just don't want them to be different, right? Yeah. So 
from afar. I think I know who they are. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, but it's because so often they don't match. Yeah. And so what causes that? And, yeah. and I think what can we do to go when we can be the same in all the places? Cause at the end of the day, that's what we all want. We want to yeah. know that the person online is the person on stage and the person on stage is that's who they are at home. That's who they are behind closed doors. We don't want these Dr. Jekyll, you know, Mr. Hyde mm-hmm. personas. And so I think one, I'd love to talk about like what causes this weird phenomenon of like, you have a stage persona, you know, you've yeah. heard people say that and it's like, you should not have a stage persona. You just yeah. need your persona. And then how do we fix that? Yeah. So what causes that is there's an interesting piece of research I talk about that it speaks to this idea of catering. So what a lot of speakers, authors, thought leaders, entrepreneurs do is they try very hard to cater to their audience. So their definition of catering, there was a study done by Harvard, Francesca Gino and her team. Catering essentially means presenting or speaking or writing in order to meet other people's expectations. Hmm. What do you think your audience wants from you? And then you do that. Right. And we think that's going to make us more successful. When we cater to other people's expectations, that's going to make us more likable, more successful, more desirable. When in fact, the research shakes out that that is not the case. And it's a lot more exhausting to cater. So they did a pitch study actually with entrepreneurs. There's entrepreneurs pitching to investors for funding. And the entrepreneurs who catered to the investors essentially presented what they thought the investors wanted to hear were two-thirds less likely to get the funding versus the one-third who kind of came in passionate, organic, raw, stumbles, fumbles, blunders, and all. That third was more likely to get the funding. So catering not only does not help your leadership or your persuasiveness or your influence, in fact, it hurts it, and you collapse into bed at the end of the night because you've been wearing this mask of someone that you're trying to be for other people. And so what we can do to over-index on that is to just try to be really honest with ourselves. Is this what we actually want to say? Or are we saying it because it's what we were told other people want to hear? And we can also just monitor our energy levels at the end of the day. If you're pooped at the end of the day as a content creator, as an influential brand leader, think about why. Mm -hmm. Is it because you're catering? Because if you are, you're going to be pooped. If you're coming from an authentic place of what you actually want to say, you're more likely to feel energized. How do you feel at the end of the day? Do that assessment, start from there. Mm. I think that's so good. It's that whole thing. It's, it is so much more work. It's like, okay, I think this is what they want to hear. So I have to Mm. put everything through this filter to accommodate that versus just saying the thing. Right. And making adjustments along the way. If you say the thing and it's not for them, guess what? You're not likely to end your career there. Make adjustments along the way. Yeah. And as I think there's an audience for anything and an audience for anyone, you just have to find yours. Exactly. I love that. But it's, and it's true because it's like when you're trying to fit the mold of whatever you think it is, it is more work. It's so much more work. And Um, the mold changes. Yeah. Yeah. Our audiences shape shift constantly. The mold, all of a sudden the goalpost, like, oops, it's not there anymore. And here we are trying to chase a target that is, is a kind of fool's errand. All right. So I have just a couple of uh, last minute things that I'm just curious to get your thoughts on. So what would you say for the person who's listening, who's going, man, I avoid embarrassing moments, awkward moments at all costs because I don't rebound quickly and it does affect me mentally, emotionally, and maybe even physically. What would you say to that person who is going, I mean, I listen to this, but I'm going, that yeah. makes me want to cringe the thought mm-hmm. of letting my failures out into the public or the person who's going like, 
that's good and all, but that would never work in my workplace. Like if I actually made a mistake, I'd be fired. Like, what would you say to that person who is kind of like filling their head with those sorts of thoughts? Yeah. So awkwardness, embarrassment, cringe, they're human universal emotions. So I hope to a degree, everyone listening to this is like, oh boy, she's having me lean into this. This is going to be uncomfortable. Yes, it is. And the moment you realize that it is not something avoidable and that it is not something we can run from is the moment you'll at least start prioritizing your response to it. So it's not that you're never going to feel it. You are. It's just, are you hooked by it? Are you ruminating? And more importantly, is it freezing you from raising your hand the next time, from trying the post the next time? Is it paralyzing you from taking those micro risks you need to take in this current market to stand out, Mm -hmm. to be a leader, to be provocative, to be someone different? If it's preventing you, then it needs reexamination. If it's not preventing you, some people own their awkwardness. They're like, I'm awkward. I say awkward stuff. And here we go. Right. They're, They're comfortable. Know which one you are. And then the second thing I would tell you is that it is not just an awareness thing. It is a conditioning thing. So I'm not saying your first at bat is put up a really provocative or potentially controversial post and let that be your first effort. How about start with calling your dinner in tonight at the restaurant instead of using the app, right? How do you start small? How do you create opportunities for uncertainty in your social environment so you can start to build up slowly that tolerance for when something goes sideways. If you don't create any opportunities in the small moments, every big moment is going to feel like that much more of a disaster when it doesn't go the way that you expect. Create opportunities in the small moments. Mm, I love that. You know, and that's the thing. It's like with anything, it's like take the small steps. But I love that. It's like to create opportunities for uncertainty. And I think most people are trying to avoid uncertainty at all costs. But you're saying, no, find it right? Even if it's as small as picking up the phone and calling, but find those moments for uncertainty to build that muscle. Yeah. If we don't, then taking small risks is never going to feel okay. And as people building brands, we have to. Mm. Okay. Last question. You mentioned it's like you you can embrace this idea of good, awkward to expand your brand. What do you mean by that? And how do we do it? Mm, Just every time you have one of those moments where you're like, this post was a flop, this podcast, I said something dumb, right? It's okay to do that. I just want to ask you, don't run away from it. See what might happen if you actually even put a little bit of a spotlight on it, right? And so in the case of the, the tribe comment, not only did I not ignore it, I actually raised it to the forefront and made it a conversation. So your missteps, your fumbles, your stumbles, they're going to happen. Not everything requires a spotlight, but Mm -hmm. carefully and selectively with good judgment, choose which ones might actually move your brand conversation forward. Because believe it or not, life gives us plenty of fodder. It just depends what we want to do with it. Oh, that's so good. And I love that. It's not like, hey, tell everyone every embarrassing thing that you said or you did, but it's like, hey, don't ignore this awkwardness that happens in life and don't ignore your missteps. But Discern with discernment, decide which one of those would actually help you expand your brand, connect with your audience. And for those, put a spotlight on them, humanize mm-hmm. yourself, and let people know it's like these things happen to me too. Yeah. I love that. And I think so much of this is about, in my filter, this is about relatability, which yeah. I think is a key to trust 
It's a key to building strong relationships, which you can build without actually ever meeting anyone in person. But yeah. so much of that just comes with like, I know that I'm getting the real person. When someone says, Hannah, I feel like I know you and they've never met me, that feels like a tick in the wind column because that means I'm giving enough of all of it to my branding efforts. And the good news is all it requires is me not stopping it, mm. just letting it, letting it come out. I love that. Hannah, if people want to connect with you, follow you, learn about you, where should they go? Thank you. It's hennapryor.com. I'm Henna Pryor on LinkedIn and Instagram. I love to make new friends. Even if it feels awkward to reach out, do it anyway. The book is Good Awkward and goodawkward.com has more details. It's everywhere books are sold. I love that. So hennapryor.com. I assume people can get all their social stuff there. And then if you want to check out the book, which you should check out the book, I think this is one of those, again, universal topics that applies to all of us at all stages of life, all stages of business. And for, for that, go to goodawkward.com. Hannah, this was awesome. I loved it. I love having conversations like this. I love meeting new friends. And for everyone listening, stay tuned to the recap episode, which will be coming up next. And I will see you next time on The Influential Personal Brand. That's all we've got for this episode of the Influential Personal Brand Podcast. But here's some great news. One of the most valuable things you can do to help us and other new potential listeners to find our show is for you to both rate this show and leave a review. So as a special bonus for you, if you leave us a comment in iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen, take a screenshot of your review and email it to podcast at brandbuildersgroup.com. We will give you free 30-day access to 25 of our most popular interviews on video in your own private members-only area. So go right now, rate us, review us, and then send a screenshot of it into podcast at brandbuildersgroup.com. And we'll get you set up with free access to our most popular video interviews all in one place. Also, just please share, share, share this podcast with anyone who you think might enjoy it. And until next time, remember that building a business isn't nearly as valuable as building a reputation. 